You're listening to Citizen Reporter number 447 for the 5th of April, 2013. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Citizen Reporter, the podcast dedicated to underreported news, the issues that don't seem to make the front pages or the top of the dig or whatever social media site you use, but affect human lives and deserve more attention. I'm your host, of course, Mark Fonseca Rendeiro, and this podcast... I don't know if you know it or not, has been going on since 2004, every week a different issue, regardless of where I am, which this week happens to be Portugal. And you can tell I'm in Portugal when you hear the loud echo because every room has these tall ceilings. Today I want to start a new series with the help of an excellent guide. My guest today is David McDonald of Queen's University. He's also the recent author, co-author, of a book entitled Remunicipalization, Putting Water Back into Public Hands. The issue is, who controls your water? Who are you paying that water bill every month to? And why? These days, remunicipalization is something that has started to get talked about and put into practice in different parts of the world, including a city like Paris, not so far away from where I live in Amsterdam where the city has taken back water from private hands. Now, there's a longer story to all this, and I think today, with help from David McDonald, we can really get into this story, and why don't we do just that? Uh, I recorded this interview with David just before I left Amsterdam last week. Here we go. There's a, you know, quite a move afoot in Europe uh, in the water and electricity sectors to remunicipalize. So, um, you know, and, and the Paris example is uh, uh, certainly looms large for people in part because it's a big city and in part because it's the home base for uh, Suez and Veolia. So um, it was a bit of a slap in the face for those two private water companies. Um, and it's been a huge success. So, um and I just there was an article in the New York Times recently uh, talking about the move towards remunicipalizing in the states as well. Um, so it's you know it's it's really a global phenomenon, and it's certainly going on in countries in the south uh, at a national and municipal level. Um, Bolivia has been remunicipalizing, well, renationalizing a number of its sectors, uh, electricity and gas and other things. So um, you know I think pressing the municipal uh, water people on, you know, why they maintain a public, a private system uh, is, a, is a, you know, pretty valid question. A lot of people say it depends on the case, you know, uh, if it should be public or it should be private or what kind of system, if it works, if it doesn't. So I'm also curious about different cases in the world and to hear about, I mean, if there's a case where the private water system is doing very well, I'm, I'm all ears. Uh, you know, I, I'd sort of like to yeah. hear. I, I think um, there's two ways to answer that. The first one is that yes, everything is context dependent, and um, you know, it's one thing to talk about Europe, North America, Australia, and so on, where there are well-established, relatively well-resourced uh, governments in place, 
um, that traditionally have or could provide service. Uh, and then, you know, well, then the question is, well, why is the private sector in there? But it's, it's another thing in, in other parts of the world where the state is very weak, uh, perhaps very corrupt, uh, perhaps even non-existent, and where the service needs are dramatic. Um, sanitation, water, electricity, you know, two million children a year die from diarrheal-related incidences, uh, which are largely related to lack of potable water and, and proper sanitation. So. You know, at one level, you can say that um, if the state isn't there or isn't capable or isn't willing to provide these services, then maybe the, the private sector can come in with its resources and expertise and so on and, and provide it more quickly. And that's certainly the argument that the World Bank likes to make and other neoliberal policymakers in countries in the South. Um, but the, the flip side to that is, well, why aren't resources being made? And why aren't we spending more money, uh, either governments in the South or uh, governments in the North assisting with development? You know, why aren't we putting in the, the billions of dollars we need into water and sanitation and electricity? You know, why are we spending billions of dollars on arms, uh, on uh, you know, subsidizing uh, multinational corporations, um, etc.? So... Um, you know, the, the, this notion that the cupboard is bare uh, and the you know, public sector doesn't have the money uh, or the expertise to provide these services, um, you know, tends to become a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, so, uh, you know, the state uh, is generally capable of and has proven itself to be a good provider of basic services like water, electricity, uh, sanitation. Um, but that's not to say it's necessarily going to do a good job. Um, and it's, you know, at the same time, it's not to say that the private sector is necessarily going to do a bad job. You know, these are just skilled people that are often out to do, you know, to do their best. Um, but there is a kind of structural contradiction here because private firms, by definition, are there to make a profit. And so they either add to the costs of service provision, which is why many places, Paris included, remunicipalize because they just said, look, we can do as good a job of them without the 10, 15, 20 percent profit margin. Um, and it leads to a kind of corrosion of a public ethic. So private firms are more inclined to kind of cut corners, cut costs, uh, reduce their number of, of, of staff, etc. So, you know, the, the, the empirical record is littered with experiences of private firms that have constantly tried to cut corners, uh, that haven't lived up to their contractual arrangements, etc. So... Um, you know, the evidence is that private firms have done absolutely no better than the private sector, even on the most narrow financial criteria that they claim to be better at. So there's absolutely no empirical evidence that they perform better. If anything, uh, the evidence is that private companies, by and large, have done a worse job than the public sector in attaining the you know, sort of basic goals of, of service delivery. I read a lot about how if you have a municipal water system, a public water system, that you're not pay or people, customers aren't paying the actual amount that they should be, that there's some kind of subsidized price because of politics and some other reasons. So this, I, I, I run into these stories all the time that part of the problem with the municipal water system is you're not paying what you're supposed to pay. Right. Well, um, 
typically what happens is that there, you know, there's no fixed price. There's all kinds of variations. And, uh, you know, one system is a step tariff. So the more you use, the more you pay. So the first, you know, X number of liters of water that you use are supposed to be cheaper. And then, you know, if you want to then use the water to fill your swimming pool, you should pay, you know, more per liter for that. So that kind of progressive step tariff um, is often in place. Uh, but there's often, you know, uh, uh, special arrangements made with large corporations, for example. So in, to use the illustration of South Africa, where I've done a lot of work, uh, electricity in particular is extremely cheap for big uh, multinational corporations uh, and extremely expensive uh, for low-income rural households. So the state makes these special deals with big companies in the name of, they will say, job creation and, and so on, um, uh, which is another debate. But the, you know, the price of electricity uh, for low-income households who consume a very small amount of it can be extraordinarily expensive. So it tends to be middle-income, upper-income and, and companies that receive the benefits of subsidies. Uh, and lower income people don't, and yet they are the ones that are pushed the hardest to pay these cost reflexive prices. And there's a kind of you know, moral language around your responsibility to pay. Um, you know, the, the right to water, uh, there's been a big debate about that. You know, now corporations will say, yes, of course, everyone has the right to water, uh, but they also have the responsibility to pay for it. And more importantly, the responsibility to pay a market reflective price for that service. So there's a kind of a logic of commodification that creeps in there, um, which, uh, you know, people will say that, you know, it's, it's only through paying a market-based price that you can truly appreciate something. Uh, and the notion of giving something to somebody for, for free or for a subsidized rate is, is deemed to be uh, an inappropriate way for them to effectively manage their water. Um, I've read about sort of changing definitions and understandings of what it means to be public. And I'm curious, I mean, even when now we have these cases of re-municipalization, so I translate that a bit as becoming public again. Um, in the case of Paris, we have uh, Hamilton, Ontario, I've read about. In, in these cases, um, is it the same kind of structure that it was before it went private? In other words, is this version of public very different from the old version of public? Yeah, um, sometimes. Um, and, you know, I should say that the last thing we want to do is sort of blindly celebrate uh, in a nostalgic way what we used to have, uh, in, you know, to the extent that we used to have public systems. Because those often weren't very well run. They were off, you know, they'd often be very top down, uh, bureaucratic, paternalistic um, systems that uh, didn't take things like gender equity or, uh, you know, ethnic identities and public participation or environmental sustainability very seriously. So, you know, one of the things we're saying is, you know, let's not just blindly celebrate something because it's owned by the state and therefore, quote unquote, public. Um, some of these public systems were just, you know, not very well run uh, or had these other problems around accountability and transparency and so on uh, associated with them. So, um, you know, in the cases that we're looking at, 
typically when they've been republicized, they've been done differently. And, um, you know, by and large, in a more progressive kind of way, and we, we identify what we mean by progressive in, in the book, the kinds of things like equity and affordability and transparency and so on. Um, but by no means are they perfect, uh, and by no means uh, have they escaped the, the clutches of the pressures to privatize. Um, and so there are still, you know, uh, privatization-friendly politicians and bureaucrats uh, in place. There are certainly the same pressures from the big private companies to to push for privatization. So in Hamilton, there's now a debate about whether they should privatize sanitation. So, you know, they, they remunicipalized water, but there's all these other debates going on about privatizing other areas. And so, um, you know, we live in a, in a very neoliberal world. Um, this notion that the private sector is inherently more efficient than the public sector is sort of ingrained in the common psyche. So, you know, we're not going to change. It took, you know, it, it took a long time to get where we are now to sort of dismantle the state and, and, and you know, create this notion that the, the private sector is somehow more efficient than the public sector. It's taken 30 years of neoliberalism to get us there. It's not going to change overnight. Um, and so, you know, these, uh, the general public, uh, policymakers, uh, bureaucrats, etc., um, I think through the experience of remunicipalization um, and pressure from labor groups, citizen groups, etc., to move towards a form of public which is not just this kind of old bureaucratic top-down kind of system that we used to have, it's, it's going to be a difficult uh, process. So, you know, but I think it's this notion that um, moving back to a public system does not just mean going back to the old ways of doing things. We need to rethink what we mean by public, who should participate in these things, what the objectives are, uh, et cetera. What about public, what they call public-private uh, initiatives and public-private water systems? I've read about them, especially in developing countries. I, I was raised in the U.S., and I, when I read about water systems in the U.S., I also get presented with this these public entities, but they behave in a sort of private company way. They're publicly traded. Um, is there anything to the efficiency or successes in your research about public-private systems? Okay, well, I think you've actually asked two questions there. The first one is these PPPs, public-private partnerships, um, and they can be anything from a long-term 40-year contract for a private company to essentially run and manage and finance uh, a, a publicly-owned system. Um, so the system may remain in public ownership, but it's, it, everything else is done by a private company. So these sort of long-term uh, lease arrangements, et cetera. And you can have you know, much smaller versions of that. You could outsource the fixing of pipes or the reading of meters. Um, you could have a, a five-year contract. So there's, there's a wide range of these so-called public-private partnerships where the state remains partial or full owner and may run some of the uh, services but the private sector is involved. And increasingly, this is where things are going. The sort of outright privatization of water systems is very unusual. And it really only happened in the UK and in Chile in the 80s, 
most countries recognize that they don't want to just hand it over to the private sector, partly because it was such a disaster in uh, in the UK. So this um, partnership model has, has been much more popular and increasingly private companies are shying away from these long-term contracts. They tend to want to go for shorter-term contracts uh, and in geographically defined areas where they know they can make a profit. So you know they don't want to go into low-income informal settlements uh, in Nairobi. They want to service you know the industrial sector of a city. So. Um, you know that that's really where the trend is is going is towards these short term, more uh, less less risky kinds of public private partnerships. But the other question I think you asked around these wholly owned public companies. Um, so they're hundred percent owned by the state, hundred percent run by the state. There's actually no private sector involvement at all. But they're carved off, hived off into standalone uh, units, often called uh, business units. And this is. This is called corporatization, and, and I'm actually doing a book on that right now. In fact, I was working on the introductory chapter when you called me uh, about what is the nature of corporatization, because it is, in all intents and purposes, 100% public. But they are increasingly run like private companies. So they're given a separate legal status. They have arm's length status from the state. They're often separated from other service sectors. So you create a water company um, and you separate all of its resources out from other uh, services, electricity, roads, healthcare, et cetera. And they operate like a company and the managers are increasingly given private sector incentives. So they're paid based on their financial performance of the, of the entity. And what we've seen over the last 30 years is that these companies tend to operate just like private companies and in, in some ways they act even more aggressively than private companies because they do things that a private company would never run the risk of doing like cutting people's water and electricity services off for non-payment which is something we've seen in, in post-apartheid South Africa with these so-called public companies that are very private in their orientation and in fact they go out seeking private contracts in other parts of the world. And there's a Dutch, actually, there's a collaboration between a, a Dutch public company and a South African public company, which now have the contract to run the private water services in Accra, in Ghana. So here are two public companies that jointly run a private uh, water company in another country. So, you know, are they public? Are they private? What exactly, you know, so just because they're publicly owned, does that mean they have a public ethos or a public mandate? Um, how accountable and transparent are they? So um, in this book that we're doing right now, we've actually identified a half a dozen case studies of corporatized entities which are actually relatively progressive and do take things like equity and transparency and so on quite seriously. And so rather than just sort of writing this model off as yet another example of, of commercialization, uh, we're trying to say under what conditions can you have an arm's length public company which doesn't just operate under the ethos of the private sector um, but does take you know, more progressive indicators of, of service delivery seriously. Um, but it's a vexing question uh, and, and the legal status of something as a public entity does not by any means guarantee that it's going to have a public ethos. Yeah. I think one of the really difficult aspects of this you already touched on is the whole public what the public understands or or thinks or how, about this topic and you know I, I find I mean not just water uh, other services get privatized and with 
some exceptions I've seen in Bolivia where there's actual resistance on the street and in other places. Um, I find a lot of times in Europe uh, when something gets privatized, there may be an initial struggle, but most people just kind of assume this is how it has to be. And, you know, you see rates go up and maybe services are exactly the same as far as we know. Um, but people sort of just accept this as some kind of evolution that you can't stop. Well, not not in Greece right now. I mean, the IMF <laughs> is trying to uh, squeeze the Greek uh, economy in part by privatizing. Um, and there's been uh, quite a bit of protesting on this. Um, and there's certainly been, you know... Uh, particularly around water, uh, a lot of protests ac across Europe. Uh, Italy had an interesting referendum on this issue. Uh, there's been a lot of protesting in Spain. Um, you know. However, uh, I think it's you see more of it in the Global South, in part because it is quite literally a life and death issue. And so, you know, when a private company moves in to operate water in France, and they operate a lot of the French water systems, um, you know, the average person doesn't really notice it. And in fact, when the Paris water was remunicipalized, uh, my sense is that if you stop the average person on the street in Paris to, uh, to say, you know, what do you think about remunicipalization? They'd probably look at it like, oh, really? I didn't even know it was public again, right? Yeah. Um, in part because the services are there. They're affordable. It's a, you know, minuscule part of, of people's monthly expenses, typically, although we're starting to see electricity prices climb in Europe and more people getting concerned about that. And in fact, in Berlin right now, there's a push to remunicipalize electricity there, hmm. interestingly from a Swedish public company, but anyways, um, and it's partly when, when prices start to go up. So I think, you know, when it starts to hit people uh, in the pocketbook, or if they start to have their services cut off, or, you know, when they start to feel the effects of privatization, then they start to react to it. Uh, but if a, you know, if you're paying, you know, relatively speaking, very little for your services and, you know, it comes through and it's reliable and good quality, most people don't pay attention. Um, this is not in the experience in the Global South where low-income households in particular have been cut off, receive substandard services, never get their services, uh, etc. And so they've risen up uh, because it has materially affected their lives. Um, and you know, for better or for worse, it, it often takes that kind of material impact on people's lives to uh, generate awareness. This is an excellent start to my <laughs> journey into remunicipalization. I mean, it's a topic that, you know, it, it touches all of our lives. But just like you said, uh, sometimes you people don't notice or they don't see necessarily what's going on. So I really appreciate not only um, you joining us today, David, but uh, also the work that you're doing. Um, I'll provide links, uh, first of all, to the Municipal Services Project website, but also you just pointed out this um, animation, which I'm actually yet to watch. I'm going to press play and properly watch it after we, uh, we finish our talk, uh, so that people can link and read up for themselves, because wherever they live, I'm sure somehow uh, there's a connection. Yeah, and I'll just you know, parting one parting thought is that um, you know, as private private contracts, uh, whatever they look like, fail, uh, and as private companies increasingly run away from uh, contracts which are difficult uh, to make profits in, uh, public uh, uh, governments are finding themselves that they, now they have to make things public again. 
And so one of the things we're saying is, is don't wait until the privatization fails or the company gets forced out by public protest. Start to think now about what a public service would look like in your community, how you might get there, how you might make it a good public service. Um, and Cochabamba is a good example. They managed to get the private company out uh, in Bolivia uh, 10 years ago. But the public provider that was created in its wake has been a disaster. And now you know, people are scrambling to try and figure out how to make that work. So we're often very good at protesting what we don't like. Uh, the challenge is now to say, OK, here's what we do like. And here's how we're going to go about uh, rebuilding or, or, or building that public system. OK. Well, David McDonald, uh, thank you so much for taking the time today all the way from Canada. Uh, it's a pleasure and hope to hear from you and definitely we'll be reading about you uh, in the near future. Okay, nice to meet you. I had this dumb dream kept saying that he'd never, never That does it for this week's edition of Citizen Reporter. Just some last notes. The very basic is citizenreporter.org. That's the website, and I give that to you so you know where to go for more podcasts, because maybe this is the first one you've heard, or this is the first one you've heard in a long time. There are more than 440 shows out there that you can listen to. And this series on water is going to continue in the coming weeks with voices from around the world, different angles related to yeah, our water. Where does it come from? Who is bringing it to us? Does it all make sense? These things that we, we so rarely question and we feel not qualified to understand, we can understand. And I want to help you do that. I want to help us do that because I'm learning as we go. So citizenreporter.org. There's also Twitter. I'm under the name Bicycle Mark, and you can follow the tweets if that's what you're into. And we're in all the other places if you look for the program. Thanks so much for listening. Catch you next week. See ya. I've got nothing I could say